Okay. So that's cool. Um, I have um, <coughs> nifty little. Um, they're these nifty little business cards. I got made at Staples. They got a cool picture of me on them. They got all my contact info, whatever. So afterwards, if you want to get one of those, if you're like, I would really ask like that you could be praying for me. And my parents, they uh, pray and support like. I don't know, at least a half a dozen different missionaries, and all of them are up on our fridge. They all have some kind of card or something like that. So I've got these little cards. It's kind of small print, but you know, hopefully you see it, and you'll just remember to pray for me. Um, so, yeah, a little bit more background on what I've done right before I go in. Um, so with YWAM, they have this whole thing called the University of Nations, and you can do all sorts of different courses with them. And so, like I said, I did um, last spring, I did the Bible School for the, Na Bible School for the Nations, the BSN. Um, and that was awesome. We went through the whole Bible in four months, got a brief overview of each book. Um, we would read it out loud in groups. Um, and like it, we got these uh, New Living Translations that have different parts highlighted in different colors. So we would each take a part and like one, would be, one person would be God, one would be the main character of the story, one would be the supporting characters, one would be the narrator. Went through the entire Bible that way, out loud. And it was so cool to hear it spoken like a story. Because it's this whole cohesive story of God redeeming his people through redeeming the world through his chosen people, the Israelites uh, leading up to Jesus. And it was just like, it all started making so much more sense when it was all read out loud as a story. Um, but then right after I got back from outreach in Tanzania and Nigeria, um, then like about a week later, I was back into Madison doing a third school called, and YWAM loves their acronyms, so you just got to bear with us, but uh, Biblical Perspectives for Transforming Nations, or BPTN, and they're working on shortening that name, um, trying to get it a new name, because that's a mouthful. But yeah, so BPTN had a focus on revival, um, and they, the, the whole school is about how um, the kingdom of God can influence all these different, what they call spheres of society, such as uh, civil government, or economics, or education, or the family, all these different things. And so how all of those are supposed to properly function uh, to further the kingdom of God. Um, and there was like three whole weeks on church history, and there was a whole week just studying on the history of revival and stuff like that. Um, and again, it was, it was only three months, but they packed just, it was the most academically challenging three months of my life. Like they packed so much into it, and I learned so much, and I'm still processing it three months after it's over. Um, but after I got back from that, I came to Communitas for like the first time in almost a full year because I'd been gone from uh, early March in 2015 and I came back sometime this January and you guys had a much bigger focus on revival than I had remembered from in the past. Uh, I remembered uh, Paul talking about how like he felt there was a revival coming back in like 2014. I remember him talking about that but it was never like the like overall focus of this whole community but I came back and every single Thursday night we'd get together and we'd pray for revival and I heard that they'd meet at other times of the week to pray for revival with other leaders in the community. And I was like, this is coming sooner than we think. And, um, and I was just like, it can't be a coincidence that uh, I spent the whole three months studying um, revival and its impact on society and stuff like that. So I've had this burning desire ever since I came back to share a little bit about revival. Um, because I had no idea what revival is before I went and did the school. I didn't even know the school had a focus on revival. I was just, I just thought, I went into it thinking, Oh, this is just about how this is a, I, all I knew about it was the aspect of learning about spheres of society and how Christians are supposed to interact, and I wanted to know that because the majority of people who do like a DTS, a discipleship training school in YWAM, they don't continue on in YWAM. They go back to college or into the workforce or whatever. 
And so I want to be able to teach in YWAM schools and to like, if I have like a like a one-on-one -on -one mentorship with somebody who's like, oh, I'm an economics major, like how do I be a Christian in the realm of economics? Like I could have that insight. Um, so I didn't know there was a focus on revival and that was really cool. Um, so when I came back, I was like, I sometimes wonder if we always know like what we're asking for. I titled my message tonight, Revival, Understanding What We're Getting Ourselves Into. Because that's super important. There ha like every revival has, Throughout history, every revival has a phase where God is preparing certain people. Um, th there's always those great names like um, Jonathan Goforth. If you have the last name Goforth, you are destined to be a missionary <laughs> or a revivalist. But Jonathan Goforth is a big one. Um, William Carey, a bunch of others. Um, but I'm sure we could name some. I have a list of them somewhere further down here. But just like there's always like the big celebrity like people in a revival, but it's actually like it always starts and at least a whole church gets revived ahead of schedule. Like something is always happening ahead of time. God is preparing certain people to help usher it in. Because a huge move of the Holy Spirit um, where God just sends a wave of conviction and nobody sees it coming, that could honestly do more harm than good if there's nobody to help steward those people who are looking for like, what do I do with all of this? And there's no churches that are prepared for it. So, um, And I think God has been like preparing you guys ahead of time. And I'm sure there are other churches in the area as well. Like I'm sure you know which ones are like really big and praying for this all the time. You meet with their leaders. But um, yeah, there's always ahead of time, sometimes years in advance, this preparation. And it, like it always starts with this discontent. Uh, there's always some kind of, you know, some group of Christians who are like, this just doesn't feel like the way we should be living. There's discontentment. There's like, there's just, this isn't enough. We want more God. and. I think that's what you've all been feeling for a very long time. So tonight, I'm going to have you just for like a minute, turn to the person next to you. I love having interactive times in my teachings. Um, turn to the person next to you and come up with like a one or two sentence definition of what you think revival is. And then I'm going to call on a few of you <coughs> to share those. If you're thinking, wrap it up. Um, and I'm just going to call on, I heard a good one up here. Could you share? Yeah, a phoenix is a really good idea. That's a really good like mental image. Yeah, real quick. Yeah. So I see it as like an awakening from the common to the norm. So the common is where you're at, is what actually is happening. And the norm is where you're supposed to be at. Like I see like Acts where Acts two two, where the spirit fell and like Did you look at my notes? Because no. I'm, yeah, okay. I did not. I, I'm sure. I'm sure you didn't, but that's I that's did really look at your good. I notes, but I didn't read that part. Yeah, I don't think you because it's it's that's sort of like how I'm gonna wrap this up. So thank you okay, so much sorry. for getting to that. No, that's good. That is, that's a, that's yeah, that's a that's a little bit of a spoiler for what we're getting to. But yeah, the whole idea of what what is um, 
what is um, common isn't necessarily how things are supposed to be. Just because it's the average, just because it's the norm, doesn't mean well, that's the all there is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, let's get one more from somewhere in the back. What was another definition somebody came up with? Stand up and say it. One that somebody else said that you liked. Okay, sweet. Yeah, living for not, yeah, living for the kingdom to come, living like the way things should be. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of different. Yeah, Tony. Fire, just fire as a noun. Okay. People on fire. Okay, so just just mass mass flames, lots of fire. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I have a couple other definitions here um, that I liked um, from Charles Finney. A revival is nothing else than the new beginning of obedience to God. Uh, Duncan Campbell, a revival is a community saturated with God. Um, this is Brian Edward. Uh, I think he's a historian of revival. A true Holy Spirit revival is a remarkable increase in the spiritual life of a large number of God's people, accompanied by an awesome awareness of the presence of God, intensity of prayer and praise, a deep conviction of sin with passionate longing for holiness, and unusual effectiveness in evangelism, all of which leading to a salvation of many believers. Um, yeah, that was that's a, that's that's probably the best like like yeah, it's like a paragraph long. It's like one of those sort of Pauline run-on sentences. If you study Paul and he just like has a whole page worth of like no no breaks or anything. Like it's one of those like massive sentences, but it really well summarizes it. But my personal favorite of the ones I found was by a guy named John Stott. Um, Pentecost has been called, and rightly so, the first revival. But we must be careful, however, not to use this possibility as an excuse to lower our expectations or to relegate to the category of exceptional what God may have intended to be the church's normal experience. So that's what uh, David, was, um, David was finding in his definition was that um, just because Pentecost may have been like the first revival doesn't mean it's all downhill from there. Doesn't mean it's like that's the highest you can possibly get, and everything else is beneath that. I think that was just like the starting point, and it was meant to only grow from there. Um, like the church, the way the churches relate, the church relates to the world. Um, my basic understanding of what revival is is that it's a restoration of relationship, uh, relationship between us, uh, making right relationship between us and God, and between the church and the rest of the world. Um, I, I firmly believe that our created purpose, the reason God made us, is for relationship between us and God and us and each other because God is a living relationship. He's three in one. He's three persons in one being. He is um, the uh, Greek Orthodox Church has this, I can't remember the word, but like it describes God as being this uh, like infinite uh, dance. Just He's constantly dancing with himself in relationship. Uh, I wish I could remember the word for it, but it's, it's just this beautiful concept they have that we sometimes lose. We sometimes tend to separate the three distinct people of the Trinity, but it's the, the Greek, the Orthodox Church has this like really good understanding of the three of them in, in a dance together. Um, like the Ten Commandments are about those two things. The first four commandments are about restoring relationship between us and God. Um, things like, do not have any other gods before me, um, uh, to take, take a Sabbath, these kinds of things. And then the rest of them are about restoring relationship between us and other people. Um, things like don't murder people, that tends to break relationship with them and stuff like that. So um, the commandments are all about restoring relationship. And 
I believe that revival is the ultimate restoration of relationship. Um, and when that happens, the church becomes what it is meant to be. However, that's also, when I, when I started to think about that, that's a really scary thought. And can you please show the video that we have loaded? Um, the whole idea of just this massive coming back to God, like it's a little bit, it should be a little bit overwhelming because we don't, in, because we're in this subnormal state, we don't really have an idea of what that could, like how much potential that has. So. Like in the heat of the revival in Pensacola. Uh, you're talking about a time of extraordinary spiritual intensity. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, everything happening with such an urgency. Crowds coming from around the world. People getting online 12 hours before the night meeting started. Every day for many, many months just with a hunger to meet with God. People getting saved in the parking lot, waiting online to get into a meeting. They didn't even know why they were coming and yet God met them there. The, the hunger, the thirst, the, the nonstop activity. My, my ministry schedule at those times was between 80 and 100 hours a week just unrelenting, experiencing God in a deeper, more profound way, just the, the joy of his presence, to feel like you're living in a dream, seeing these things happening that you've prayed for and longed for for so many years, now they're happening in front of your eyes, transform lives, and then people in the school being equipped and sent out the testimonies. At the same time, you're, there's constant attack, there's constant controversy, the, the demonic pressure was hard to describe. I've told people that the highs, spiritually speaking, were like nothing I'd ever known, and the lows, spiritually speaking, were like nothing I'd ever known. And in retrospect, you think, oh, if we'd instituted this to help other leaders, or if we had worked this out or that, well, it's so hard in the midst of everything because of the intensity. It's like you're in a boat, uh, you're on, uh, out in the ocean, you've got the waves pounding, you've got 20, 30-foot waves coming, you've got the wind blowing, and all you can do is basically keep that boat going in the right direction, or, or not even that, just stay afloat. And sometimes in the midst of revival, that's how it is. You, you'd be so exhausted some nights, you think, I, I just can't do this. And then you'd say, hey, you don't know how long this is going to last. The famous Leonard Raven who quote, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized during the lifetime of the opportunity. You don't know how long this is going to last. And second, people have come from around the world hungry and thirsty. You're going to tell them you're tired. And third, God's really touching people. They're responding to the messages. When we lay hands on them, they're being transformed. When they hear the word, they're embracing it. So there was that sense of urgency and yet that sense of dreamlike joy. Look at what God is doing. And then a constant jealousy to see lasting fruit come out of it. That was the, the intensity we were in the midst of day in, day out for several years. <laughs> yeah, so that is uh, Michael Brown. He was one of the leaders at the Brownsville Revival in Florida in, I think, 1998, something like that. And um, my favorite thing he said in there is that the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized during the lifetime of the opportunity. Uh, you, you get, like, once this thing starts, you have to be ready. Um, and so, like, Basically tonight, I'm just going to be going through some things that I learned um, about revival. Because like when I think of revival, I just think of we're all just basking in the Holy Spirit, and it's just like all this whole good time all the time. We're all just like having a good time with the Holy Spirit. But there's so much responsibility for those who are called to steward this. Um, and I believe that a lot of you here will be called to steward this revival, and I think that God has so many exciting opportunities for you. But I just want us to all understand what comes along with this. Um, instead of 
um, just attending a revival if you're helping facilitate it, uh, some of the things that come along with this. Um, so as he mentioned, revival is exhausting for those involved. He said sometimes his ministry schedule was 80 to 100 hours a week. And if you read some of the revivalists who are like part of the first or second great awakenings, that's really tame, honestly, in terms yeah. of what you could be doing. Um, I can't remember who it was, but I remember one of these, uh, he was an English revivalist during, I believe, the Second Great Awakening, um, and he would sleep for four or five hours a night, uh, get up, pray for like an hour, and then just go out, and he was preaching a couple times every day for decades, I think, and he, was, he, would, he traveled more than any other person at, alive at his time. He traveled thousands upon thousands of miles just back and forth across England, um, just all over, back and forth, back and forth, all the time for decades. Um, I mean, that was one of the biggest revivals of all time, yes, but we want to have it as big as possible. And the bigger it is, the more people are coming, the more intense it's going to be. Uh, Evan Roberts, he was the leader of the Welsh revival in the early 1900s. Um, he lasted a year and a half before he had an emotional breakdown, and he, di um, he was only 28 years old when that happened, and the rest of his life he was, I don't remember how, I mean, people didn't live super long in the early 1900s, but yeah, he had this like, just, he just could no longer function, and he spent the rest of his life just sort of like writing poetry and like relaxing, like he was in this like phase of just like, I can't do any ministry anymore. After a year and a half, and he was, some people say he was like the most famous man in the world for that year and a half he was doing this, because that was a huge deal. Uh, people all around the world had heard about him and heard about what he was doing, uh, so that's a lot of pressure. Um, and I have like just like a minuscule understanding. I was trying to relate it to like anything I might have done. Um, and this outreach to Africa I did uh, this past summer. Um, it was just six weeks. Uh, we were we were at this program called Biblical Education Leadership Training, or BELT, um, and we were teaching church leaders and pa pastors those kinds of things in Nigeria and Tanzania, um, basic biblical principles. Because oftentimes in like, uh, for example, on Zanzibar, my wonderful shirt is for Zanzibar. It's part of Tanzania. And uh, off, like the church there is super small and super persecuted. It's 99% Muslim. A lot of the people in places like that, uh, the first person converted in a village or whatever is the pastor of whatever church comes up there. So they don't necessarily have any training. Uh, they're just filled with the spirit and want to do stuff. So they're a pastor, but they don't really know the Bible all that well. So we were teaching it to people, um, basic biblical truths from uh, the Bible in just a two-week period. And it was pretty exhausting. Uh, we would... Uh, all of our like downtime was spent preparing for the next teachings that we would do. Uh, we had these posters because in oral cultures they're, they're very uh, to have vi to do uh, visuals and to tell stories is often how they learn. Um, so we had these posters with the principles that we were teaching uh, in picture form, sort of like a little acting out what we were teaching. Um, and those would take a long time to prepare. Um, we would be doing. Uh, four and a half hours of teaching generally a day. So it would be like hour and a half break, hour and a half lunch, and then another hour and a half. And that's a lot to prepare for. Um, and we often didn't know who was going to be teaching it until like the week before. We'd get together and be like, who wants to do this? And then the rest of our downtime for the next week leading up to it would be preparing for it. And that was really short. And I came out of that, and I was just dead. Um, and I can't even imagine. like. A revival is like that times a thousand. Uh, you don't have time to prepare. You just get up and you go do ministry until like the revival ends, basically, um, which could be years, depending on uh, how it's stewarded and stuff like that. So it's exhausting. Um, 
there's, yeah, like there will be less time to prepare and more stuff to do. Like there'll be so much to do, so many people coming in, it'll be a bit overwhelming. And it also, on top of all that, requires constant spiritual vigilance. Um, during a revival, the boundary between the natural and the supernatural becomes very thin. Um, that's the best way I've heard it described is yeah. that there's just like this, the Holy Spirit comes and the supernatural is just much more like common. Um, it's very, very hard to know when you aren't like, when you aren't like actively um, like interceding to God and being like, okay, God, what's up with this and what's up with this? It's very hard to know whether all the weird things are actually coming from God or if it's just because the supernatural and the natural are mixing. Uh, not everything that's seemingly miraculous is necessarily from God. Um, and um, one of the enemy's best tactics is when he can't just straight up kill you, he'll try to distract you or tire you out from being able to achieve your full potential. Um, it requires a lot of discernment. There can be um, just a ton of distractions of people that seem to be manifesting in the Holy Spirit, and then you pray and you look into it and you try to discern, and you're like, that might not be... Like, and then people are distracted from whatever message is going on. Like, oftentimes, somebody will be preaching a message, and then somebody will become, like, very distracting, and then people aren't getting the truth that God is trying to speak there. Um, revival attracts the demonic because revival is a threat to the enemy's plans. Uh, the devil has a vested interest in screwing with people's experience during revival. Uh, he wants them to come out of it as confused and uh, disoriented as possible um, so that they can't get everything that God is trying to give them. Um, again, another uh, semi-experience that I have with this is um, on Zanzibar, I had a friend who on, on a Sunday was giving a message. Just It was just straight up the gospel. Just This is just repent and accept God's grace. Um, it was, but the way she was doing it, she's just an amazing teacher. Um, and like people were just really responding. People were weeping. It was beautiful. And then some lady just starts manifesting a demon and just like goes up there and like everybody gathers around her and like that's much more common in those parts of the world. So it, like I was losing my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, I'd never seen anything like that before. And I could ju I just looked at Allie and she was just like so like disappointed because she knew, like we all very quickly realized what was going on because the church like these people they've seen demonic possession before they've seen this stuff before and so their automatic reaction is let's gather around this person pray for them let's uh, exercise this demon but they were pulled out of that moment that they were in um, they were engaged in list they were super everyone was so I'd never seen so many people just so focused on one person's mouth like they were just watching and like waiting for this truth to come and Allie was just giving so much truth and then at that point, like, it, the sermon was basically just over. Um, and, I mean, a lot of people still got a lot out of it. And, like, when we were leaving, everybody thanked her personally. So, like, it still had the effect, and God didn't let that all fall flat. But that's generally, that's the enemy's go-to thing is, hey, look at me. Don't stop, stop listening to whatever they're saying. They're, they're telling the truth. Oh, no, I'm doing something cool over here. Like, that's, that's generally, like, all he can do. And so he'll, he'll do that over and over and over again. So it requires constant... Uh, vigilance. Um, another thing the enemy will try to do is, if you can't distract, is to just wear you down. Um, we found out after we left Zanzibar, our translator told us that every single night he was up praying against the witch doctors that were around our house chanting every night, um, trying to basically just keep us from sleeping, trying to instill fear in us, trying to... And the first night I was there, I heard people like yelling outside our house, and I don't speak Swahili, so I just thought it was a bunch of drunk people. Um, and, but then later I thought about it, and I'm like, this place is 99% Muslim. Who's going to be drunk here? Um, and so he told us later, he's like, yeah, I would stay up every night 
and just pray against those and like um, and eventually they would die down but like yeah we didn't sleep very well um, our whole team was just constantly on edge because we were all sleeping poorly um, we were like there was just this spiritual heaviness over us that we couldn't put um, we couldn't put uh, quite to words but we knew something weird was going on so that was keeping us exhausted that was keeping us on edge and that was the enemy's whole goal there was to just keep us from being at a hundred percent so we couldn't give a hundred percent you can only give as much as you have and we just didn't have as much as we wanted to because we were just too tired and too fed up with each other all the time um, and that is so we just we, we had heard going in that yeah it's going to be a lot of spiritual warfare in Zanzibar but I think we underestimated how much we were going up against and in revival, you can't underestimate that kind of thing. This is going to be, as he said, the highs, spiritually speaking, were the highest he'd ever experienced, and the lowest, spiritually speaking, were the lowest he'd ever experienced. Like, like everything is just a roller coaster because everything is coming at you at once. And for me, I think the scariest thing about revival, and it, I think it probably scares everybody when they think about it, is that all of your dirty laundry will come out. Um, if you're, if you are part of the people that are called to help steward the revival, it will probably come before the revival in that the conviction of the Holy Spirit will probably come on you and you will be moved to confess everything. Um, because God needs you to be as guilt-free, as shame-free as possible so that you can be an example to the people that are coming to you because they're going to be feeling the same conviction. And you can't, and again, like you can only give as much as you have and you can't be like helping somebody through their like lust issues that they're confessing if you haven't worked through that yourself. And so God is going to do that ahead of time to those he's called uh, to help steward this revival. And that is just a scary thought. Like, I have things that in, like, in my past and current habits that I've tried to break that I could maybe confess, like, privately to, like, a good friend or something. But the idea of just, like, being in the church and just, like, screaming it out. Like, I love reading these um, stories of, like, Jonathan Goforth, I can't remember the name of his book, but if you can read it, it's amazing. He was a missionary in Korea and I think in China as well. And he went to these, he would go to, like, people would come from all around and they'd just be worshiping for hours and hours and hours. And then he would preach for, like, a couple minutes about, you know, repenting and whatever. And the Holy Spirit would just come in a spirit of conviction. And people would just be screaming out, like, oh, I murdered this person two years ago. Or I've been, or, like, pastors would be like, uh, this one story is there's a pastor who he'd been working with, a Korean pastor, who confessed, I've hated you this entire time, like up there in front of everybody. And then they just cry about it together and there's forgiveness. But just like, just because you feel conviction doesn't mean that you have um, necessarily been converted. Like you can feel the conviction, you can even confess and then choose to not do anything with that. And on that, that could mean you come out of it worse than before because then you've hardened your heart to this. I'm going to read an excerpt from Brian Edwards' book just titled Revival. Conviction is not conversion. Neither does an awakening mean conviction. The real thing is the Holy Spirit passing through the imagination and feelings to the conscience, so creating conviction, then through conscience to the will, so leading to conversion. Uh, one reason for this is a high level of continuing, one, sorry, one reason for this high level of continuing is that the churches. Uh, we're careful never to allow people to conclude with that a mere uh, to conclude that a mere profession was enough to guarantee true conversion. In 1860, Thomas Phillips wrote down the way the churches were taken um, were taking care of those who had made profession, and this is a quote from Thomas Phillips, the revivalist in the 1860s. 
On every occasion, care is taken to instruct the people in the true and unchangeable principles of religion. They are cautioned against resting in a mere outward profession. They are told that excitement is not conversion, that an awakening of the conscience to a sense of guilt and danger does not always result in a change of heart. It is strongly and constantly urged that whatever hope or confidence they may have in their own minds as to their having passed from death into life is a mistake, a delusion, unless it is accompanied by hatred of sin and renunciation of it in every shape or form. And it is also accompanied by love to holiness and a practical discharge of every moral duty. They are told that the Bible is to be the standard of religious feeling. It is of religious, uh, as it is of religious faith. In short, they are admonished to seek a thorough change of heart and to furnish evidence thereof in holiness of life. Basically, just because you showed up at a revival and felt a bunch of emotion doesn't mean that you've gotten everything that God has to give you. Um, everyone's going to feel emotion. It's going to be an emotional time. Emotion is not a bad thing, but it's also it's it's a good thermometer, but not a good thermostat. Um, it's a good measure of what's going on, but it doesn't mean that it's set in the right place necessarily. Um, so, um, yeah, it's very important for people that to who are facilitating the revival to be um, not just like making sure everybody knows where they're going, where the bathrooms are, whatever, but that every time they see somebody going through something, they can pounce on them and be like, let me help you with this. Like, like it's just a bunch of like really intentional discipleship nonstop. Um, Charles Finney would never, ever tell anyone that they were saved. He knew that wasn't his job. It was the Holy Spirit's job. We have to be very aware of how we talk. We have all these phrases that we sometimes use that there's going to be a lot of unchurched people coming in that don't necessarily understand all of our church lingo and saying like, oh, just do this and you'll be saved. Um, and then they do it, and then so you're like, oh, yeah, you're saved. Like, the Holy Spirit does something in people. He would tell people how to, like, um, receive. He would help steward people into this. He would, he would preach the gospel and then just let the Holy Spirit do his thing, and he would be there for people when they come with questions or whatever. Um, so now that we understand, like, there's a lot of responsibility here, uh, here's just a couple of ways that you can actually prepare for this ahead of time uh, to prepare your heart and your mind. Um, one thing, as I said, is get your hearts right with God. Confess your sins now rather than later. If you want to help steward the revival rather than just attending it, you need to not have anything to confess. Otherwise, when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, you won't be able to function as a leader because you'll be on your face with everyone else. Um, another thing is practice your preaching ahead of time. If you think there's even a chance that you might be a preacher, have sermons just memorized or bullet points that you carry in your pocket at all times for emergency. Um, I, there was, only, uh, I believe it was uh, Goforth who only had a couple of sermons, like four or five that he ever used, and he just used the same ones over and over again because they're based in biblical truth. They don't need to be long or showy. Um, it all, all, the whole point of preaching during a revival is for the people who have never heard the gospel to hear the gospel and then to receive instruction on how to accept Christ. Um, and teaching does need to happen at a revival. There needs to be biblical instruction. A bunch of people sitting around and healing people and manifesting the Holy Spirit, it might be part of a revival, but it's not necessarily a revival, and it won't spread or gain any momentum um, if there isn't truth being taught as well alongside of the cool things that are happening. That may draw people in to look at it, but they need to hear the truth of the gospel, which radically changes people's lives, so when they leave, they have something that they can share with others as well. Um, yeah, as, as much as we love miracles and Holy Spirit stuff, it, it's got to be about the content and not the style. 
Um, and when revival hits, you won't have time to research or study or prepare a sermon. Uh, you're going to wake up, go there, and stuff's just going to be happening all around you. Um, so have teachings on repentance and grace and the gospel ready to go. Um, the guy who taught me all this, he's been studying revival for many decades just as a hobby, but more and more as he's been doing that, he's been feeling like one is coming. Um, so he, he's a retired pastor and now just works in YWAM doing stuff. And so he has, like, on his laptop, he's got a couple of sermons that he's like, I can't wait to get to use these someday. Um, uh, yeah, research and study previous revivals. Um, and specifically the revivalists, people like Charles Finney, Jonathan Goforth, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Dwight L. Moody, more. Like there's so many there's so many people from history that have these great examples that we can learn from. Um, I actually have a list of resources that the guy I just told you about, the teacher I had, he just has a list of a ton of books on the history of revival. Um, so I can share that with you if you want. Um, and just remember though that each generation each generation has a revival. Somewhere in the world, there's every generation there's been a revival, uh, and they always look very different than the last one. Um, and oftentimes, the old timers who were young when the previous revival happened that they were a part of, they're like, this isn't a real revival, because it doesn't look the same as when they last, like, they're all excited, they're like praying for the revival, but then they experienced something when they were young, and this new generation has something different. Like, it may look basically the same, but there's this new element that the Holy Spirit has brought in or something like that, and they're like, I don't remember that, that can't be from God. Um, so oftentimes there's this expect, like we have this idea in our mind of this is what it will look like when it comes. And just be open to it not being exactly what you're thinking it's going to be. But when you study revival, look at the timeless aspects. What are the things that happen at every single revival? Things like preaching, things like massive waves of conviction, these kinds of things like that, have, that are necessary for it to be an actual revival. Um, but then there's all sorts of other audiophora. It's neither here nor there. There's all sorts of other stuff that would be cool one way or the other, but are not necessary to make it a revival and do not mean it's not a revival if they happen. And the fourth thing, which I think you guys have been doing a really good job, is pray a lot. Just constant prayer. Um, this is the one thing that like inspired me to do this is I see you guys praying. And like as I, as I opened with, every revival throughout history has had people who God put it on their heart to pray for it and they did, and eventually it came. Um, there's that discontent, which I think most of you have felt. There's, this isn't the way things should be. There's so much more possible. And they would just pray for that and ask for that, and just be constant in that. Um, that is one of those timeless things that every single revival has, is people praying it in. Um, so what's the end game here? Um, what are we, like? Like when a revival happens, like what are as as we talked about in the beginning, we're getting back to we're trying to get back to what is normal, what is supposed to be normal. Um, revival brings an irreversible change to the church. The church gets gets saved in a way. It refocuses and recenters. It's when Christians start living like Christians. So really, it's the restoration of normal Christianity, meaning Christianity as it's supposed to be, but. By the time the revival has come along, the church has been subnormal for so long that people think that the revival is abnormal, that it's this thing that's happening for a while, like, hey, everybody come to the revival because there's this weird abnormal stuff going on, and then when we leave, we'll just go back to being normal. Um, but that's not what's supposed to happen, and I, it's really hard for that to happen. When people go to revival, they tend to live out the rest of their lives as though the revival is still happening no matter where they go. People go to their graves still like preaching to every single person they meet in the street. Like It really impacts people. Um, emotionally, it just changes their lives. Um, but what is the normal? What is the New Testament normal? 
Um, we always have to be going back to Scripture. What is the New Testament normal? Um, could somebody read out Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 real quick? Anybody got their Bibles? Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Anyone you got? Not that one. That's probably going to have some Hebrew in it. Oh. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. All he gave, you know, and, wow, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, and for the work of, of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But we, no, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All right, so that was kind of a long one, but basically what it's getting at is that there's Part of what is New Testament normal for the church is a progressive growth in relationship and character. We're growing as a body. We're not just individually getting something out of the sermon. There's, or we're not just individually going out and doing ministry, or we're not just individually studying whatever. We do everything as a body, and we are consistently growing as a body. I think that's one of the things that will come out of revival is a much more focused on um, relational and um, corporate uh, everything in the church as opposed to um, sort of the just come on Sunday, uh, do this, and then we have a small group on Tuesday or whatever. I think Christian lives will just intermingle and we'll have a much more communal, relational way of life. It'll change people's lifestyles very aggressively that way um, to be much more relational in that way. Um, another one somebody else can look up is 2 Corinthians five fourteen to 15. Yeah, part of the New Testament normal church means that you have Jesus as your Lord, he's your king, and he's in control. Um, that you give up control of your life. Um, and we, we try to do this so much all the time. Uh, we, we have this desire to give Jesus this control, but sometimes there's just things in the way. And I think revival clears out most or all of those things. And I think that people are finally able to give complete control to Jesus and just be like, God, you are my king, you are my Lord, you are my head. I have died to myself, I'm alive in you. Do with me what you will. Um, and I think when people live like that, it's just so, like, there's just so much more potential. Because we, we have some potential on our own. We have things we can do by ourselves, yes. 
but nothing really meaning or impactful or like long term can come from just our own individualness. But when God is with you, there's literally no limit to how long your impact can be. And I think revival will really have that solidified, like in the people who attend the revival, they'll come out of it with Jesus as their Lord in every aspect. Um, and one last one is Acts 9.31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Walking by means of the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That word comfort is a Greek word, periklesis, uh, which means more than just good feelings. We think comfort, we're like, oh, I'm so comfortable. Like, this is such a soft pillow. I feel so nice. Um, the word has a couple of different meanings uh, in where it's used in the New Testament, but one of them is... Um, exhortation or instruction. Um, it has a sense of uh, a long-sidedness of somebody walking, um, like, of the, like somebody walking under the complete control and receiving all things from the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit exhorting you, like saying, go do this, and you're doing a good job in this, or like, here's how you should do this, and like the Holy Spirit guiding you in every aspect. Um, and just receiving everything you have uh, from the Holy Spirit. So the comfort there is not just he comforts you when you're sad. It's he gives you everything you have, every part of you, of your character, of your personality, of everything is all being influenced. It's under the direct control of the Holy Spirit. And that, like, I don't think, like, I've met people who, again, like, I've met people who can give up more than others can of themselves. But I've never seen anybody who's just, I don't think I have, maybe I have, but I feel like you would recognize somebody, like there'd just be something different about somebody. And I think that's part of the like, when people say, when uh, people come out of a revival, they're just different after that. I think that's the biggest thing is they come out and they've experienced the Holy Spirit so close. They're like, why would I ever try to take control from him? So they're just like completely sort of free and um, so full of joy because they're not in control. Like, and they're so happy about that. They're just like, I'm no longer trying to control my own life. I'm getting everything from the Holy Spirit. So are you ready for all that? Because I'm not. Um, there's a lot of preparation I know I need personally um, if I'm going to be part of helping to steward it. And unfortunately, as somebody who's in YWAM, I can never know where I'm going to be in the world more than a couple months ahead of time. But um, if the revival breaks out here very soon, I'll hopefully be close enough that I can head on over. But I don't know, like if I'm ready to be one of the ones who's helping to steward it. And I think every Christian, whenever a revival comes, I think every Christian there has the potential to be. Like, just imagine if every single Christian in the Twin Cities area was just ready uh, when the revival came and that every single God knew that he could send a non-believer to any Christian around them when they feel like, because when the revival comes, there's going to be this general, like, over the whole city, probably, over maybe the whole world if it's the last big one but you know like the, there's this idea of like people just feel something different they feel called strangers like I don't know why but I'm gonna walk into this church even though I'm on my way home for dinner like that kind of a thing um, and if every single Christian is prepared um, how 
much potential that revival has to bring real change like to every non-Christian who's like brought into it. Um, but I think oftentimes a lot of Christians, they are revived by the revival themselves, but they weren't ready ahead of time to help steward it and to bring in, to, to help it see its full potential. So like every single Christian who's prepared ahead of time brings the revival even more potential. So if you really are feeling this call on you to like be a part of it in more than just a I'm attending kind of way, I really encourage you to be wondering, God, where do I need to prepare myself now so that I can help you, so that I can be a part of this, so that I can receive everything you have to give me to give to other people. Um, and that's going to be the sort of prayer time I have at the end here, as to be people praying in groups together um, to sort of share, like, here's what I was convicted by, here's what I think here, that I really need to be encouraged in, like, maybe I need to study the word more, maybe I'm going to be a preacher and I need to prepare my preachings or whatever, like that kind of a thing. But like these practical things that you think, I could start doing this right now to prepare. Um, pray with that with people around you. Before you do that, mm -hmm. what's your bottom line? What do you hear tonight? One sentence. What's something that you heard that grabs all? Um, when revival comes, you better be ready. That's the thing. It's loud and clear.
So I want to pray for you and pray for you now to catch to catch this in your heart. And then we'll just take a couple moments because we're, uh, we're, we're about uh, ending here. Just a couple moments to, to spin around and pray over one of the things. Don't, don't take a long time. Just pray over something in your heart regarding one of them that, you, that you've heard or that you've been feeling. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we hear it in many different angles, many different areas, many different countries. We hear it. The revival's upon us. That it's stirring. It's stirring among children, among young people, among older people. Father, we pray in this uh, in this city that probably has more young people than any other city per capita in the United States. More more universities for sure in the Twin Cities than any other any other city in the nation per capita. So uh, God's highlighting that for young people to be ready for what God is doing. I pray that young people would be ready. I pray that the Christians who know the Lord and are young adults, that they would be ready in their hearts to give to give testimony of the truth. This is a time not to be cooling off. This is a time to be fired up. It's not a time to be chilling out. This is a time to be prepared, to be disciplining yourself, to ready yourself so that you're not caught off guard as revival comes, but you are really moving right in. You're, 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 you're ready for it. So, Father, uh, prepare this little battalion here. Prepare them so that they uh, see the seriousness. The way Chris talked about it, it's serious stuff. It's very serious. Yes, wow. And so we need to be ready for that, to ready our hearts, to be ready for what God is bringing upon us. In your heart now, just answer. I think if, if, if you want to be there, just say, We're in a war. Paul said to Timothy, suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He didn't say enjoy yourself. You're on a picnic. So we're not, we're not here to enjoy ourselves. we got eternity to enjoy ourselves. We're here to fight a battle and to fight it. That's why we got to get prepared. Soldiers got to get ready for the, for the battle. So spin around now. Just one or two other people. Spin around. Just take a moment to pray and to prepare uh, pray seriously about anything that you heard that uh, uh, you want to highlight in your heart. Go ahead. Find one other person. 